Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Traphagen, and I'm joined by my partner in error, John Kagg. John, how are you doing today? He's doing okay, but he's got his thing muted there, so we can't hear what he's saying. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, um... For this episode, we are very delighted to welcome Dr. Arthur Kaplan, who is currently the doctors William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine in New York City. That is a mouthful, um, and a very impressive mouthful. Um, Art is the author and editor of 35 books and more than 800 uh, papers in peer-reviewed journals. His most recent uh, books are Vaccination Ethics and Policy on MIT Press, which was published in 2017 with Jason Schwartz, and Getting to Good, Research Integrity in Biomedicine, which was published by Springer in 2018 with Barbara Redman. Art, we are delighted to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Um, So I'd like to begin just by asking if you could talk a bit about your career. How did you become interested in bioethics and and what sort of topics have, you know, generally been interesting to you over the course of your career? So what do we have, an hour for me to do that? Uh, Well, we can go longer if you want. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll give you the uh, Freudian explanation and then what might be called the uh, epistemic explanation of how I got to bioethics. The Freudian one is... I'm one of the last people in America who got polio. So I was in the hospital with polio for about nine months, paralyzed legs and neck, not my uh, diaphragm, not my chest. So I was never in one of those iron lungs, a very good thing because you didn't really survive that. But I was in Boston where I grew up and went to uh, the Mass General Hospital and was in the hospital for a long time. And I think... A number of things that happened there got me thinking a lot about the ethics of medicine. So the doctors would never tell us when a kid died. And we knew the kids were dying because they were clearly very sick, but they said they went home or, you know, got shifted to somewhere else. None of us believed that. 
reminded me that a lot of important medical information is communicated between patients. That's how you learn or get misinformation, <laughs> but that's, that's a pathway that is uh, frequently used. My parents couldn't stay past visiting hours, which were limited to one hour, uh, three times a week. My uh, dog never could come, who I missed uh, greatly during that uh, period, but my homework always arrived every day. Uh, somehow they managed to get that to me. And again, they didn't know what to do with polio. So we had a lot of interventions like heat pads. I had a ton of heat treatments. I don't think they did any good. Uh, I could go on, but the basic uh, uh, answer to this sort of long-term question is I started thinking a lot about why are they not telling us the truth? Why are they not letting us visit? Why can't my friends come in? That sort of stuff. And I think that did play a role in piquing my interest in, in all of these ethics issues. I also went to rehab, uh, physical therapy for another probably two and a half, three years questions came up there. I saw a lot of people who were uh, not motivated. I saw a lot of people get yelled at. A lot of questions came up there about how to motivate someone, how to give up on someone, even questions about how far to go. You might say, well, they'll take you as far as you could go. No, rehab is a field where if you get as far as you need to function, even if you might be able to restore more ability it doesn't happen because there's a press on resources. So again, things to think about, even as a little kid, uh, you know, why are we only raising my arm this high? And we could go further apparently, but then you have to hire a private home physical therapist and my parents aren't going to be able to do that and that sort of stuff. More outside the realm of uh, deep psychoanalysis, uh, I was doing my PhD in philosophy at Columbia pretty straightforward pathway, philosophy of science, for uh, cognoscenti of philosophy of science. My, I was the last student of Ernest Nagel, and I had as my other two advisors, Sidney Morgenbesser and Isaac Levy. So if you could clear that group, you never worried much again about encountering anybody else uh, as a critic. It was sort of like, okay, um, this, is, this is quite the team. Um, I wrote my dissertation on evolutionary theory and why is it scientific as opposed to creationism or other things you might teach as uh, sort of origin accounts. And by the way, I thought I'd settle this, but apparently not since we're still arguing about teaching creationism in the schools as science, but okay. Um, while doing that, I got interested in a new area called sociobiology. This was the attempt to explain social behavior by means of evolutionary principles, but it was a conundrum. Uh, basically, you had insects that were not breeding that had highly developed specialized roles. Think of uh, ants who have feeders and warriors and many other insects, social insects, where or termites, where... Uh, you can't explain it by means of natural selection because they're sterile insects in these casts that are doing specialized jobs. Sociobiology tried to answer that. Not going to get into that right now unless you guys want to, but uh, it's always uh, fun to try and answer that question. But um, 
What did happen was sociobiology became very controversial because they were also saying that many human traits could be explained in terms of genetics and biology. That led to a lot of pushback from people who said, nah, what works for animals, you're missing culture, you're missing uh, sort of transmission of information by language or writing, other non-evolutionary means. You can't say that you're going to use biology to explain why we're social or why we're aggressive. That controversy got me really interested in the ethics of science. The other thing that happened was somebody threw up a job announcement at uh, the Columbia Medical School saying they were looking for somebody to teach a course in medical ethics. And if they had a science background, which I do, um, they would, uh, that would be a plus. Long story short, went up there, taught the course, got paid, course sucked. It was terrible. Everybody dropped out and stopped coming. And it was because I taught it as a straight philosophy course. You know, here's, we're going to begin with uh, Socrates and somewhere, if you're still around, we'll be talking about John Rawls. And uh, they didn't want to do that. So I went back to the dean of the medical school and he said, two problems. One, your science background is a lot, is nice, but you need more medical background. So he put me into the med school, which I did for two years. And then he said, two, you got to teach cases. That's how we teach around here. We don't teach by principles or historical evolution of ideas. When I was doing the two years, I saw a ton of ethics issues. Who was going to get kidney dialysis when we only had a few machines? Uh, Was it ethical to do in vitro fertilization? The head of the OBGYN department at Columbia was adamantly opposed to trying to make life outside of sexuality and outside of the human body to put to do it, as we say, in a Petri dish. Newborns were routinely not being treated when their parents said they had too many birth defects allowed to die. Was that right? That really got me interested. So it was that combination of factors that drove me in that direction. And without taking up the whole hour, the career interests, oh, I got interested in transplants because I couldn't figure out at the time why we were dialyzing so many people when we didn't have enough machines and this procedure known as kidney transplantation was kind of appearing. And one thing that quickly I observed was that we weren't asking families when somebody died if they would be organ donors. So I said, well, you know, you don't need Immanuel Kant to sort of believe that you're going to get more organs if you ask for them than if you don't ask for them. So I made up a law, wrote a little article, got picked up uh, by Oregon and New York. And long story short, I began to work with state legislators to pass what became required requests, which is still the law today. Uh, That really got me interested in all things uh, policy as well as uh, ethics. And I was interested in those other areas I mentioned, uh, reproductive ethics, always been of keen interest, research ethics, uh, paid a lot of attention to things like the artificial heart and artificial organs as supplements to transplants. So I've been a little tech focused, a little bit policy focused, I would say. Art, I have to say that um, I followed your work since I've been, since I was an undergrad, so about 20, 25 years. And you've been a constant inspiration in terms of applied ethics and my own work with military ethics and drone warfare. Um, and also the sense that philosophy can, you know, speak to a much, much broader public and really 
should. So it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, thank you. By the way, um, that comes from my early role model. It was Socrates. Well, it was also, I mean, it's also John. your ideas. Uh, it was always, he was a big, in, reading him was a big influence on me. It's also John Dewey. I mean, one of my yeah, favorites, yeah. John Dewey. Um, By the way, Nagel was a uh, contemporary of John Dewey. And he said to me when I was doing my dissertation, you know, you have a good uh, presence. You're able to speak clearly about these things. My old friend John Dewey could do that. I never knew what the hell he was talking about half the time. But I think you should do what he was doing. So there was a link there, too. I wanted to ask you, I mean, I think about your career as a sort of exemplary philosophical career, but I wanted to ask um, if you could articulate moments when you've been wrong. I mean, the podcast is um, How to Be Wrong, and I was wondering if you could say a little a bit, bit about times where you found yourself in the error, either intellectually, in a scholarly format, or um, personally, and how that's changed you as a thinker and as a person. Yep. Uh, error and uh, mistakes uh, happen not infrequently. Uh, I prefer to think of it sometimes as getting better informed <laughs> about something. But I'll give you three examples. One is uh, was a very early experience I had that just changed my view about uh, who to listen to or who to get input from. Uh, very simply, uh, there was a guy who needed a blood transfusion after a massive accident, and uh, we had him in the hospital, and they called in the ethicist, which was me, at Columbia, as a matter of fact, and um, they said, you got to convince this guy to take blood. So, you know, this is a time when we're all pushing hard for autonomy and letting adults choose their care, and we're not going to force things on people. So I have the conversation with this guy. His wife's there, his religious leader's there, his adult kids are there. No blood. Doesn't want it. Try everything I can think of. You're going to orphan your children. Uh, you know, we can make you take this blood. You don't have to sort of agree to it. Let us, if you will, impose it on you, and then probably you'd be okay. Nope, nope, nope. So finally, I said to the rest of the doctors, no blood. They didn't want it. This is a refusal that's informed, and we all leave the room. Uh, although the doctors are furious with me because it's sort of like, what good is this ethics guy if he can't save this guy? <clears throat> they knew where they wanted to go, and they weren't interested in autonomy. They're interested in blood transfusion. <clears throat> I don't know what got into me, but I walked down the hall, and I decided I'm going back. I'm going to try one more time. I, I, this, is, this is just, I don't know, some vibe. I go in the room, there's nobody there but the him. I say, do you want blood? He says, absolutely. He won't say it in front of his family. He won't say it in front of his religious leader. He's not saying it in front of his kids. And it was a lesson to me. You have to put people in the right environment. You have to put people in a situation where they can say meaningfully what they trust. I had not done that prior. That was an error, a serious error about how to sort of talk with patients as to what they want. It's not just information, it's context, it's environment. Do they feel coerced by circumstance? So that stuck with me forever uh, as a learning experience where I had made mistakes that way in the past. A second one, I opposed face transplantation when we proposed it here at NYU. I thought it's cosmetic. It's a ridiculous use of 
extensive resources. Um, plus, uh, you know, these are just people pursuing looking better. They could wear a mask. They could cover themselves. We don't really need to get into all this rigmarole about getting a face from a dead person and trying to transplant the thing onto an, a person with an injury. Well, long story short, the surgeons said, you don't know what you're talking about because these people are not doing this for cosmetics. <clears throat> and I said, what do you mean? They said, they have severe impairments. They can't breathe. They can't eat. They can't make tears. They can't do any functions that are part of daily life that involve not just their face, but the head and the neck where they have these injuries. You should go meet some of these people. So I did. I interviewed about five or six people who were potential candidates. And I quickly learned that this is not a cosmetic procedure. I mean, there's a spinoff that's cosmetic that everybody's happy to have if it improves their appearance, but it's really a functional uh, necessity. And that wasn't so long ago. That may have been five years ago, but it was a reminder, get the facts straight. Don't just go off without really immersing yourself in the situation uh, and learning what the, the facts of the matter really, really are. Third one, quickly, when people first proposed uh, medically assisted dying, physician assisted dying in the state of Oregon, probably back in 1997 or something like that, I was a critic. I said, look, it's going to be abused. You're going to take people who are poor, people with disabilities, and you're just going to push them to voluntarily go, quote unquote, voluntarily kill themselves. And also, I'm not sure you can safeguard this so that people who uh, are suicidal or mentally troubled aren't trying to end their lives. Long story short, they implemented the law, I have to say over my objections, but other people are objecting to, and no abuse has happened. And People had waiting periods and checkoffs with psychologists, and you had to take the pills yourself. It wasn't like the doctor was putting them down your throat and many, many other protections. I had to change my mind. I was just wrong. So I became a proponent of Oregon-style assistance in dying for the terminally ill because factually and outcomes-wise, nope, what I worried about was false. And I could probably go on with 10 other examples, but those are some. It's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that comes up in what you're saying is, is the importance to be open to learning and, and the recognition that we, we never really have all the information. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about over the past few years with the COVID situation, all the problems that's arisen with this. And I've been struck by this tendency of a lot of people to get really upset and angry when the message coming from the scientific community changes, you know, this has been really, of course, directed at Dr. Fauci, but it's, it's just, it, to me, it shows kind of how little our public seems to understand about how science works and how, how thinking and learning works, you know, that it's an approximation. We don't get the answer to things. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that in relation to ethics of vaccination and mask wearing and, and what we've been dealing with over the last few years or, you know, anything else relevant to that? Sure. Well, first, vaccination facts changed over time. You may recall when COVID first appeared, the vaccines we had prevented not only uh, severe illness, but they prevented transmission. 
if you got vaccinated, you didn't get COVID. Then the, uh, excuse me, the uh, virus mutated and all of a sudden you could get COVID, but the vaccines were still effective against dying and also length of being sick. CDC, Dr. Fauci, many other people did not do a good job explaining that shift. So the critics were running around saying, well, if I can get COVID despite the vaccination, I don't need any vaccination. Didn't communicate that change in what had happened to the virus. Why wasn't the vaccine effective in the same way? That sort of problem. So that was huge. It led to people fighting back against school closures, fighting back against mandates. They're sort of like, what's the point? If I'm going to get sick and you're still yelling at me to go have to get a vaccine that doesn't work, quote unquote, well, it worked. It just kept you out of the morgue as opposed to kept you from being sick. So a few thoughts about this. First, I didn't see a lot of my ethics friends on the medicine side picking up on that transition of fact for a while. So they were kind of caught a little bit with their pants down, sort of saying, you know, uh, you still have to get a vaccine. And someone would say to them, well, looks like you can get sick or my wife or somebody got uh, COVID even after the vaccine. So what's going on? And by the way, also missing the fact that no vaccine is 100%. So even before the virus got smarter, um, people did get sick after vaccination, just a lot less of them. But um So I thought, well, the bioethics community, really, it's got to do better in tracking the science. One gripe I have is that sometimes the people on the ethics side aren't as well grounded and don't stay in contact with the latest work in virology, the latest work in vaccination. Throughout my career, I've tried to really embed myself with scientists, like those surgeons I mentioned earlier who said, you're wrong about face transplant. You don't understand the patients. I'm happy to get corrected. I'm not afraid of learning, (laughs) but I want to have the um, sources at hand that raise the odds that I'm going to be able to, to deal with the right facts. Other thing I would say about COVID, we are lousy at uh, science communication. Now, obviously there's issues about schools and are we teaching, if not science, then good thinking, logical thinking, sound reasoning in schools. I don't think so. I think that's a problem. Too much rote learning and spit back facts kind of stuff. Um, Not enough thinking. But my real gripe is we don't emphasize the importance of scientists and doctors and experts communicating, not on the New York Times or NBC, uh, and I say that as somebody who's sometimes there, But it's local communication. If you want to see where ignorance wins, it's locally. They go to the school board. They go to the 4-H club. They show up at the church. They're going to be yakking away at Kiwanis. You know, academics, I'll just say it about myself, we're, you know, pretty prestige-oriented. I want my colleagues to see what I write and debate what I think about. That's nice. Um, Just doesn't cut it when you're trying to have a policy shift, uh, like something like COVID, you got to be local. And I don't think academics are local enough. And I don't think scientists and doctors are local enough. 
Uh, one sort of follow-up to that, I mean, how do you then address the issue of scale when you're thinking, I think a lot of academics think, well, if I get something in the New York Times, the reach is really far and really powerful. And that if I spend my time at more local events, I'm not really reaching enough people. But it seems what you've just said is, I think, really interesting. But I was wondering if you might address the issue of scale and sort of reach of, reach of voice. When I write in the New York Times, <clears throat> when I'm interviewed on NPR, I know exactly who hears it because all my colleagues come up and tell me they saw that or they disagree with that or whatever they're going to say. My uh, nephews, who are all under the age of 30, haven't seen the New York Times uh, in their lifetime. They don't know what it is. They get all their news from YouTube, social media, that sort of place. If I talk to uh, kids of my friends who are in high school and I say, where do you get your news? Or has anybody ever come in with a copy of the New York Times and said, hey, read Art. He's got something interesting to say about COVID. Mm -mm. So, yes, New York Times, national media outlets, a few magazine type social media things like The Atlantic, they have big reach, but it's reaching a very informed crowd. You got to catch up to where the messaging is going on, where people, younger people particularly, have their ear to the ground, and it is not the New York Times. Second thing I would say about reach, many of my academic friends are confused. They don't understand the social media world. If I publish something, an opinion piece, in where I live is Richfield, Connecticut, where I am today. If I put it in the uh, Richfield local newspaper, you know what I do? I take out the URL for the column, put it up on my uh, Twitter site or my Facebook site, and I make reach. It doesn't matter what it's in. I can transmit it anywhere I want to. And if you're savvy about trying to get your messaging out, I even keep a list, honestly, of high schools in Connecticut that have science teachers on it. I know where to send the things I want those kids to have a chance. I'm not saying they always use it, but, you know, have a chance to use it. We started a local thing here, Connecticut Citizens for Science, built a website, trying to drive messaging into local communities that way. So it can be done. But I'm sorry to say, I think the academics are too snobby and in a certain sense, like to talk to their peers, which I understand. I talk to my peers sometimes too, but that's not the way to fight a public health menace. That's not the way to message during a pandemic. Can, can you think a little bit, or can you talk to us? Let me get rid of that. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about the, the cases where you've seen a sort of public health menace overcome by I mean, your efforts or efforts of your colleagues where missteps have been righted or sort of, you know, errors have been corrected? Mm. Um, yeah, I think, for example, um, when mandates were first proposed during COVID, many people thought, even some academics, that what that meant was coercive intrusion into the workplace, into schools where like the vaccine police were going to show up and you were going to get vaccinated, like it or not, that that was just going to be the way it was. That's what a mandate meant. That isn't what a mandate meant. 
a mandate means the default is you're going to get vaccinated. And then there are still paths, if you don't want to be, to get out. You might claim a religious exemption, broad or narrow, depending on how generous we want to be. You might claim a health exemption. Um, And those were not recognized. Slowly, they began to be recognized. And you began to be able to argue that, look, this isn't just dragging you out, you know, by the scruff of your neck and holding you down when we vaccinate you. That's not what a mandate is. A mandate is a presumption that you should be vaccinated. And by the way, it isn't even clear what the penalty is if you're not vaccinated. (laughs) Maybe you lose your job, but maybe nothing happens. So the point being, there's strong mandates, there's weak mandates. Most defenders of mandates, me, we're talking about weak mandates took a while to bring people around to understand that there was a range of, of uh, interventions of that nature. Can you, can you sort of articulate for our listeners what sort of large issues in bioethics you envision in the coming years? Oh, yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I'll say, if you're young and you're watching this and you're thinking, is there a future in bioethics, medical ethics? Haven't they answered all the big questions? No. There's a ton of huge issues looming and good field to go into. I'm not arguing it's the only one, but if you have an interest and are willing to be interdisciplinary interdisciplinary and eclectic, trying to learn medicine, trying to track the science, stay alert to the theology, stay alert to the philosophy, I think it's still got a bright future for problems uh, to be addressed. So one big one is obviously emergence of knowledge about the brain. We're all wound up these days talking about mapping the genome and what we know about genetics and so-called precision medicine, that we're going to start to use genetic knowledge to target drugs or even vaccines to particular people with particular biological makeups. That's true. But the brain is in the same uh, situation. We're just starting to map it, just starting to understand how things work. I'm not saying we've solved the uh, problem of what is consciousness yet, but putting that aside is a big challenge. We're at least starting to say, oh, so that's where memories short-term are, and that's where uh, you process visually first uh, screening of what's going on around you, and on and on. We're mapping the brain just like we're mapping the genome. That's going to raise huge issues. Elon Musk has said maybe we'll attach ourselves to neural implants. We might, but I certainly think we're going to be attaching ourselves to neural implants for medical purposes to try and fight addiction, for example, or depression or many diseases where we flounder today, not knowing quite what to do. Who gets that? Is it ever compulsory? Do you have to do it if you want to avoid a jail sentence? do you get paroled if you show that your uh, inappropriate thoughts about women or children have been obliterated by some brain intervention, this sort of thing? Obviously, some people are going to propose staying in a, uh, let's call it, uh, artificial uh, reality world. Maybe that's where you get sentenced. No more prisons, no more uh, jails. You just go there for your rehabilitation. You have to spend two years in uh, what Star Trek used to call the holodeck, if you remember that. But there you are, and you have 
experiences, therapies. You know, we do it a little bit now when you try to make somebody desensitize, say, to fears of heights or spiders, but it would be obvious that we're going to head into a much more powerful world of complete stimuli. Another area that's huge, artificial intelligence. We're having these arguments these days about, uh, you know, can programs really imitate us and submit papers and do therapy? These programs are pretty dumb. They're not really clever. They're just kind of seeing what we commonly say as humans when we respond to something. Those programs are going to get better. And how we manage that, how we integrate that into our lives, huge, huge area. I think in areas like war, uh, you know, how much of it is going to become automated and how much are we going to take the humans out? Uh, interesting uh, area to think about wars of the future. We wouldn't, you know, who wants to send pilots when you can send drones? And uh, you look at things like the World War II style battles in the Ukraine don't have that kind of thing. So maybe we'll, in a sense, have artificial war and tournaments and other ways around that. I certainly would be looking, too, at climate and health. Huge issues coming up there. Are we going to engineer plants and animals to better sustain increased temperature? Are we actually going to really fortify our health system so it can get through climate change, which... I'm at NYU when Hurricane Superstorm Sandy came uh, seven or eight years ago. We got blasted. We went off. And I know that's happened in Galveston, Texas, and New Orleans, and many other places. And then a simple, you know, on the climate side, you're starting to think, uh, are we going to use more genetic modification of foods? Are we going to artificially engineer the environment? so that we get cooling by putting up giant shields so that sunlight doesn't hit us and on and on and on. So that's just for starters. Uh, There are lots and lots of emerging technologically uh, driven issues. I even think one last one I'll mention, you know, now we try to use uh, contraception to prevent unwanted birth. But I can imagine a situation where everybody is given contraception and then you need to get permission to have a birth. In other words, a world of opt-in fertility. Is that a good idea? Population control, whatever. Are people going to tolerate disability if it's preventable by uh, intervention? So even in areas like that. I think that this is very interesting. I would like to ask a, a sort of last question along these lines. It seems that many of the issues that you bring up um, and the resolution or the way that we handle the issues that you've presented turn on either a population's ability, a group's ability, or a person's ability to be humble about some of the assumptions that they have about the world and the way that with the way that we currently live. And this brings me to the issue of epistemic humility and um, what seems to me to be a sort of lack of epistemic humility in certain uh, parts of the population and around certain topics. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about that? And then also um, how that might relate to the ability to admit one is fallible and then change one's views on the basis of fact. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting 
question and concept. I'll just impugn myself and say, in my training in philosophy as a PhD, what I was taught was be a killer. Go out, savage the person's ideas, rip them, uh, knock them down. And that is the way you get both to the truth and that is the way you become a successful professor or academic, at least in the humanities. And, you know, I've been to many a uh, uh, presentation and uh, symposia where that's the ethic on display. I completely disagree with it. I don't think that is actually the only, I mean, it could be a way to uh, truth, but I think epistemic humility, as I would sort of start to understand it, is to say, look, we're in, we're in this together. We're trying to approximate toward the truth, improve our understanding. I've always believed that you get to the truth. I'm a little bit of a Dewey and pragmatist by outcome. <laughs> it's more like you say, this is true. Okay, can you cure the disease? Can you get a missile to hit a target? Whatever it is, that'll convince me. So I'm more pragmatic. But it leads to humility because you miss a lot <laughs> or you don't cure very much. You realize, oh, I don't really understand a lot here. I think in mentoring, it should be taken seriously. You should start to teach students to argue with respect, to listen. Look, I'm a pro-choice uh, person on abortion, but I don't think it's a bad ethic to say that you want to respect life or you want not to kill potential human beings. I, I think that's a good, I, I understand why people have that view as power. And I'll acknowledge that. Somebody says they don't want to vaccinate their kids. I don't just say, well, you're an idiot. Um, I say, you're trying to protect them. But I think you're wrong about what's the best way to protect them. But I acknowledge that you're trying to act out of concern, not because, you know, you saw Joe Rogan talking about uh, his favorite fears of vaccines or something on a podcast. So humility is partly what's the style of inquiry that will get us closer to uh, improved knowledge, improved uh, ways to proceed in the world. I like pragmatic. I think that grounds things better than just coherent, which is part of what I was criticizing in the style of argument that I was taught. I think mentoring is important in trying to teach uh, people how to behave. I think you should be a good role model. I'm not talking that you have to be sin-free or something. I'm just saying you know, students watch and they see what you do. Do you, uh, are you cruel in class? Are you mean to people? Uh, I think that's important to set the right tone of character for uh, engaging in intellectual debate. And then I really am committed, as I said, trying very hard to um, at least be humble enough to say, you know, Here's the places I was wrong. Here's the places I learned. Here's the places uh, I, I was lazy. Uh, I like the title of this podcast. I think people probably figure that the experts, they just live in a world of, you know, certitude and absolute success. Uh, I don't want to say I've been wrong more than I've been right. That isn't true. But I'm not batting uh 
600 either, you know, I mean, it's like eh, a lot of errors, refining thinking, learning more. And by the way, as we all know here, the facts themselves change. We talked about it with vaccines and facts are always uh, shifting and changing. So what was true that I believed 25 years ago isn't necessarily what I believe today, not because I was wrong then, it's just the facts shifted around me. So I am a huge fan of trying to explore this notion of epistemic humility. I think society needs it. I think academia needs it. I think our experts need it who are in science and medicine and architecture and the military and uh, places like that. Under Underexplored, but very important. I, I, I love the way that you phrase that, Art. And, and one of the things that's really... Um, you know, striking to me that you pointed out, like, for example, the issue of, of abortion. Uh, I, too, am on the pro-choice side. However, if you, if you listen to a very different argument and start with the assumption that they start with, then actually the things that fall after it usually make sense. I may not agree with that initial point, but it isn't just a bunch of dumb ideas. And, and I think we need to respect that. I think that's kind of the point you're really getting at is we need to develop a sense of respect for differing viewpoints, which humbles us about our own viewpoints and their limits. I, I think that's a really wonderful way to think about this. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, even on the abortion front, a lot of scientists and doctors stayed out of it completely, mm-hmm. never said anything about how does a fetus develop? What is an embryo? And what is its potential to become a person? And I think they were afraid. So another aspect here, even of epistemic humility, is you go in and you have to be a little brave that someone's going to challenge you or someone isn't just going to say, oh, well, you know, you're the embryologist at Rockefeller University. I guess that's the end of that. Um, So you've got to be willing to venture forward with information that somebody isn't just going to accept because you're the expert. I mean, I might do it because <laughs> what do I know? I listen to experts more, but not everybody will. Yeah. And I think you have to be willing to accept the fact that not everyone's going to accept it. And also, you know, be willing to listen to the why they don't accept it. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd like to kind of on that note, turn to a, l- a little bit of a different conversation. Um, so you, you and I, it turns out, having not known each other before this, uh, but we have many things in common. We both grew up in Framingham, Massachusetts. Yeah, um, that's, the, have, that's the key to epistemic humility right there. Uh, you bet, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Route 9 and the Natick Mall, and it'll humble anybody. Uh, but, um, so um, we also have an interest in, in bioethics, and we have another thing that we had in common that we both got added to a professor watch list by the conservative organization Turning Point USA. I feel very proud to be on that list with people like you. So that's a, that's a good thing. But I, I'd like to really know what your thoughts about being on this and, and about the presence of these watch lists are, um, whether it's Turning Point's list in particular or um, more generally. And how do you think this affects academic freedom in our society in general? Well, my Real reaction to lists like that are, I don't care, they don't interest me. But then again, I have tenure. So if I was a junior professor, it might make me a little more nervous. And if I was teaching at a state school, which I did at the University of Minnesota, knowing something about 
state government and its relationship to state universities, I might be more nervous. But personally, I couldn't care less uh, what some group of conservatives decide they don't like or people they don't want to listen to. And I know how I made that list is because I was very critical of Trump on his vaccine policies on things like not masking, not providing enough uh, protective gear and other blunders that I thought he made. And I think that was right. So, you know, if that gets you on the list, probably is kind of a poor list. But what I was getting at is I don't feel so vulnerable to political pressure, but I'm watching, you know, book bans in Florida and people revising the curriculum. I mentioned about evolution, still trying to drive creationism back in Tennessee. Texas is in upheaval about its curriculum. There are all kinds of people pulling books, banning books, no discussion, don't say gay uh, kind of laws and all this sort of thing. Generally speaking, I'm kind of a free speech advocate for universities. It's the one time in your life where maybe you should be able to venture almost any idea, try it out, see why it's wrong, uh, get it um, kicked around, if you will, without real fear. I think those conservatives, if they're true conservatives, ought to be agreeing with that, um, that that's uh, sort of a Burkean idea, little inside baseball crack there, but it's uh, something that I think will lead to uh, better uh, thinking and better reasoning if you can sort of say what you want. Obviously, there's a boundary. You, you get up against racist speech, hate speech, and it gets tricky because, you know, you don't want to go in there and spread falsity all the time or just bigotry against some group. And I get that. And I understand why people demonstrate when a certain say, Nazi speaker comes to address a crowd at a college and all that. And there I'm almost case by case. It's sort of like, well, that's, what is it? And what are they going to say? And if it's just a Holocaust denier, eh, maybe not. We should protest. If it's just kind of let's explore the upside of eugenics, all right, I might give that one a whirl and and, because people think it and they – you know, it's not like it's news that somebody thought, I wonder why we don't breed humans to make better humans kind of thing. Um, but generally speaking, I think the watch lists are there for intimidation. I think they're there to muzzle. I think they're there to scare. I think they're there to, you know, <clears throat> a lot of conservatives think academia is the last stronghold of the lefty pinko liberals. There's a little truth in that. Universities tend to be a little more lefty, unless, by the way, you're in the medical school where I am or the business school, in which case that isn't the ethos necessarily. But so they're trying to fight that. And that's politics. It's got nothing to do with, you know, intellectual uh, uh, assessment of somebody's views or values. So partly I don't care. Partly I have the security not to care. Partly I worry that it's going to bully junior faculty who are vulnerable, particularly in state institutions where politics plays a role in the budget and tenure. And then somewhat I'm a you know, more free speech uh, person with case-by-case examination of some limits. Yeah, that's a, a really I, like, I really like the way you put that. The, the eugenics is a good example. You know, on the one hand, 
it's obviously not something that, you know, we, we want to have lots of conversation. On the other hand, if we don't talk about it, we can't talk about its problems either. And it, it has things like these very difficult topics have to be put out in. And that's what a university is for. That's our place to have that conversation so that, you know, we can look at that and say, no, this isn't the way we want our society to be or, you know, wherever we go with that. But I think that's to me, that's the big problem with the, the watch lists is that they're an attempt to shut that down. They're an attempt to intimidate people and say, you can't talk about these things. And, and you're right. It's like the complete opposite of what conservatism is supposed to be. <laughs> so it's kind of ironic in a way. Um but yeah, it's it's just it has interested me. My my deep um, offense was that after one of our endless numbers of mass shootings, I wrote a piece in favor of gun control, drawing on my experience having lived in Japan, where they don't have this problem, they don't have guns, and you know we ought to learn something from that. It doesn't mean we just have to do what they do, but that's telling us something. And boy, that was just like I'm going to cover my ears and not listen to this guy and. And he's evil because he raised it, you know, and yeah, yeah. The, so. um, the intimidation of the watch lists um, is very concerning to me, but so too is um, a topic that I was wondering if you might be able to address, which is, it seems that the reticence to change one's opinion and the reticence to admit one's wrong oftentimes hinges on a type of fear um, and it, which comes from an institutional sort of inertia that the fallacy of sunk costs kicks in. And if we've, if we've plowed enough money into a particular program, if we've gotten particular grants, if we've gotten particular research agendas up and running, it's very difficult to change, um, change minds at that point or to change directions, especially quickly. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about in your career where you've seen this institutional inertia, um, you know, really make us more reticent than we should be to change our minds. And it seems like that's in bioethics and in applied ethics, engineering ethics. It seems like that's a real issue. And I was wondering if you might be able to speak to that. So one of the big achievements of bioethics, I talk about it, but all my friends, colleagues do too, and even the people before us, was to really promote patient autonomy, put the patient more at the center of directing healthcare. So get informed consent and also establish a principle that people shouldn't do things to you without your permission. All right, that sounds good. But it, it gets taken too far. <clears throat> we have situations where somebody argues right now, you need my permission to do an examination to see whether a person like, say, John has apparently died and we want to run a brain death test on him to see if he's really dead. Some people say, well, I don't want you to do that because I don't want you to take him off machines. If he's dead, <clears throat> that's a pretty bright line about taking somebody off life support. But out of respect for patient autonomy, some people say, well, we need permission before you can do a test. Other people come in and say, I have a headache. I want you to do a CAT scan. Oh, well, I better do that. Or I'm having trouble in the bedroom. You better prescribe me one of these erectile dysfunction drugs. That's what I want. So I have to do it because that's what he wants. Informed consent and choice, very important. Patient autonomy, very important. 
But in my field, driving everything toward, uh, if you will, patient preference <laughs> or giving control over how to practice doing a brain test exam or whatever uh, check or study we want to do to the patient is totally wrong in my view. We've gone too far. And it's very hard to pull that back because we have both sunken costs in the patient autonomy value and we're proud. We did this. It's good. Overall, it's good. Overall, it's better. You know, we all the readings that you're going to get if you take a bioethics course are going to be about how paternalistic and awful and uh, just intolerant medicine was for many, many decades. All true. I'm not saying it isn't, but it's really tough to say, you know, this isn't a restaurant and you don't get to come in and a menu and like order up. I want this and I want this. Uh, that's not how to practice medicine. That's you got to put some limits on this notion of autonomy. So that's a big one for me. I think sunken costs big on patient autonomy, but it's so sunken that we can't get out of it. Plus, it's one of the defining things that made the field legitimate. You know, look, you liberated the patient. Hooray! This let's keep doing more bioethics. That's got to be worthwhile. That's that's fascinating. It, it, it as you were speaking, I thought to myself, you could just substitute university. The same thing has happened. It's it's this customer model of the student that's emerged, and I think it's a customer model of the patient. Except students and patients aren't customers. It's different, and and you know I I see the exact same thing going on in higher education where you know the students. I, yes, we want to cater to their needs. We want to do things that address what their needs are. On the other hand, the faculty are experts who know how to do this stuff, and they also know what things need to get conveyed. And I've seen this kind of flip happening in, in my career in the university where um, that customer model, I think, is actually doing a lot of damage. Yeah, I agree. And I'll just extend that by saying I get a little irritated also when people say, well, what people want is to get a job. And that's why they go to college and they want careers that drive them toward jobs. I always thought you went to college to learn how to think and maybe get a job too. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Okay. Some skills that would help you impl get employment. But part of the mission is to learn your culture, your background, learn about diversity, learn about other things, learn how to think, make an argument, be a good citizen. Where's all that gone? We don't care about that. It's just Volk school. Just to give it, just to give a metaphor from Framingham, but you know, it was like, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> we're just all yeah. going to learn to be, you know, mechanics. That's it. Yeah, that seems to be what it's it's moved to. That's what a lot of higher education looks like. I, I describe it as glorified high school, and maybe mm. it's glorified Vogue school. You know, mm. and and um, and it's really, I think, a shame because I think it's doing a lot of damage to our society. And they're um, actually conservatives. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the guy at. Uh, I think it's James Madison, the economist Brian Kaplan, something like that, who frequently argues, you know, well, you don't want to sink 70 grand a year into some effete uh, educational thing where they just teach you to think. I mean, that's ridiculous. Save the money and get a career and get a career start. I completely disagree. It doesn't get responded to enough. It's like, no, we're, it used to be we went to high school to be a good citizen, unfortunately, knowledge advanced. So now we got to go to college to be a good citizen. That's part of what is going on here. John, you have any other thoughts? 
I mean, I'm just really struck um, by how great this conversation has been. And I wish that as I was in college, I was listening to conversations like like this one. So, Art, I really want to thank you. Is there something else that you'd like to sort of add to this discussion? Thanks so much for your time. Well, I would say this. Um, we talked a lot about admitting to error. I think the way to be humble is also to look at and study what leads to success. And it's usually not a direct path. It's blundering around, trying out things, withdrawing false hypotheses. I'm not a total fan of Karl Popper, the philosopher who gave us the idea that you advance understanding by falsification more than you do by confirmation. In fact, he didn't believe in confirmation, which I think is wrong, but that's his little uh, error, um, I think. But uh, falsification plays a huge role. And so the way to progress is through being adventuresome, testing hypotheses, being willing to put your idea to the test, test it against practical outcomes, see whether you could do what your belief says uh, you ought to be able to do. Uh, we mentioned, I guess John mentioned the gun issue. You know, we've been living now, what, with uh, 20 years of no assault weapon ban and at least 10 or 15 years of more liberal gun laws. How's that doing in terms of body count? Not too good. So might be time to rethink, for example, even though I'm not saying everybody ought to have their guns taken away and all the rest of it. It's like that policy stinks. So I think we have to understand it isn't just by intoning a mantra that we believe that we get ahead. It's partly by showing what's wrong and paying attention, paying attention to what fails that we get ahead. Thanks so much, Art. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been just a fantastic con. I just want to keep talking endlessly. So, uh, but I uh, really, really by appreciate the way, it. I have one other thing to say before we all yeah. leave. I have something one up on you, I think, John. Okay. This year, I am being entered into the Framingham Hall of Fame. Well, I, I, I cannot <laughs> compete with that. So. You can. You can. You are able to. And I'm not talking about the high school. I'm talking about the whole the whole town, man. Whole that, that's town. that is impressive. It yeah. Is. Yeah. It well, is. tell me when the induction uh, ceremony. No, or I'll send it, you both invitations. I'm sure please. you want to make your reservations. Yeah. Sounds good. So. All right. Well, thank you very much, Art. And I, and I hope we can reconvene and talk again sometime. Very good. Thank you for having me.